This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strengths of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. The most significant innovation in 30 years, it's a complete research system that gives you confidence you found the most relevant information. And it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com. The National Association for Legal Career Professionals recently reported that only 88.3% of 2009 law school graduates had employment, 25% of jobs reported were temporary, and 10% were part-time. The findings make some wonder if a JD makes economic sense. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and that's what we're talking about today at the ABA Journal podcast. One of our guests is Donald Polden, Dean of Santa Clara Law School. He also chairs the Standards Review Committee of the American Bar Association's Section on Legal Education and Admissions to the Bar. Don, do you think these recent NALP numbers are accurate? Uh, Stephanie, I think that the numbers are probably accurate as far as they go. Um, and so, for example, the figure uh, 88% is probably an accurate figure, but what that number does not tell uh, readers is uh, whether or not uh, those individuals are employed at a law job or at a non-law job, whether they're fully employed or underemployed, um, or for that matter, uh, whether it's even their highest uh, preferred job or a fifth or sixth uh, preferred uh, job. So um, I think that uh, a lot of the criticism about that part of the numbers is um, is probably accurate. Um, how we could get more accurate numbers is, of course, another question. And how do you think we could get more accurate numbers? I, I think at the uh, uh, at the cost of greater complexity in them. And so, if you take a look, for example, at the NELP reported numbers and, and the numbers that law schools report to the American Bar Association, which are very similar, there's a tremendous amount of detail that is in those numbers, the percentage of your graduating class, for example, that are at law, large law firms, the num- number that uh, go on to graduate or LLM programs, the numbers that uh, uh, go into small practices or solo practice. So there's a, there's a lot of real detailed information that if you drill down, um, you can get a, a little bit better picture of what the employment opportunities are like um, uh, for graduates of particular schools. Uh, so I think that that's an area where uh, some gain could occur, but perhaps at a greater greater cost. Uh, you also have to remember, as I frequently tell myself, this is all self-reported information. I think that uh, most of it, uh, most of the information we get from our, our graduates is pretty accurate, but uh, there are reasons that they may not want to be forthcoming. Also joining us is David Van Zant, Dean of Northwestern University School of Law. David, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think I think Don's right. I think there's also another element to um, why they may not be as accurate as we would hope, and that is uh, I understand, again, I don't have any data on this, but I understand that uh, some schools sometimes have very low response rates to surveys. And so it's often difficult to get people to respond if they don't have a job. So I'm a little skeptical of the 88% itself. I have long advocated that we use an outside organization um, to to collect the data for the rankings. Um, The business schools do that. I know that uh, Financial Times actually uses a large um, accounting firm to audit 
audit these kinds of numbers. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we ought to be we ought to be doing that. Also joining us is Kyle McEntee, a third-year law student at Vanderbilt University, and he co-founded a group called Law School Transparency. Kyle. Tell us why and how your group was founded. So basically, we recognized that the employment information that Vanderbilt was releasing to its prospective students uh, was incredibly helpful in explaining, I guess, where the graduates actually go. And so our goal is to sort of standardize that their standard and create a new employment reporting standard that similarly provides meaningful information to prospectives. And pretty uncontroversially, law school is a huge investment that begs for an informed decision. Basically, we don't think that most law students are currently making them. And basically, we end up blaming the flaws on the standards and not the schools, um, because we think the schools mostly do comply with the standards. It's just that the standards tend not to to ask the right questions. What what would the right questions be? So we actually would like to see two anonymous lists provided by um, law schools, one that includes information more about the job itself and another list that includes information about the salary related to the job. And these lists would be for every graduate from a particular year from a particular school. And so this way, perspectives could look at the list and say, okay, here is exactly what people are doing from this school. Here's the value that this particular JD has added for these students. And of course, there are many problems that follow from such a list, but our goal is to basically balance balance uh, the interests of all the major stakeholders and create something that that benefits the legal profession as a whole. Kyle, based on what you're seeing and hearing as a law student from some of your colleagues who are a few years ahead of you, do you think these recent NALP numbers are accurate? It's tough to say. Um, My experience has been mostly with Vanderbilt students, and it's just one of 200 schools included in the NALP numbers. the, The problem with a survey seems to be more that it, just, it doesn't help perspectives to make the right comparisons, even if it is accurate. And so whether that 88% actually reflects the number of people who are employed or not, it, it's kind of a, a separate question from what we're actually concerned with and what we think will matter to students going forward. And I'm curious, when you were considering law schools, what were you told by some of the schools about employment opportunities? Basically just told the same information that's provided to the ABA or the U.S. News and as collected by the National Law Journal, uh, most specifically the 250 largest firms. Um, And that's probably the information that was most important to me at the time because it is such a sizable investment. And Vanderbilt is really the only school I can, again, attest to. And they gave us this list of all their graduates, where they want to work, um, including the employer name, state, and the city. And from this, it was, I guess, a lot easier to get an idea and know comfortably what to expect. Of course, no one expected the economic downturn. The, the information, I guess, seems more trustful when it's, about, when it's right there laid out clearly for you. And mm-hmm. the, the other law schools, they didn't do this except for Duke. And we actually think that Duke and Vanderbilt have seen kind of a, a bump in the desirability because of this among prospective students. So I'm curious, how did that work exactly? They just gave you a list of recent graduates with their employers? In, well, to start, I guess, a little backstory. In 2008, uh, Patrick, my, the co-founder of Law School Transparency, actually informed the Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt Career Service Office that there was some misinformation floating around on a website. 
And so as a result, they decided to correct it. And to do this, they basically gave us a a document that just listed every single graduate or just about every graduate. Uh, it didn't include the, the unemployed graduates, but from the actual information on, this, on the document, including the percent employed, you could actually kind of deduce how many of the, how many specific graduates were unemployed and how many were getting their LLM and how many just weren't seeking employment. Um, David Van Zandt, do you think law schools could do a better job presenting the employment picture for incoming students? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think uh, uh, law school transparency is one good idea about doing that. I think one of the um, uh, one of the concerns is how do you get the information to the uh, applicants as opposed to existing students, which I, I think I understand that that's what Vanderbilt was doing, um, because by the time they're existing students, it's already too late to make a change uh, in terms of, uh, I suppose they could transfer, but too late to make a change in terms of the school they um, pick. We need, law schools need to publish um, results for all their programs broken down the way Kyle was suggesting. Um, we do that even for our master's programs, our LLM programs, which uh, uh, we have sort of challenged other schools to publish theirs, but they, they seem very reluctant to um, publish, publish data on LLM programs um, of that kind. But I think we need, all need to be very upfront with the percentage of students in, uh, that were both included in the reporting, but also that have certain kinds of positions. Um, I think that's, that, uh, that's very important. I agree, too, that, you know, I think probably when I think about it, the most important question for an applicant is if I make a big investment in law school, what value added do I get from that? There's, you know, will I get a higher salary coming out than I would have gotten if I've not gone to law school and, you know, lost wages and spent all that money on, on tuition? That's really the key variable. And I, I've actually argued that we should have that. That should be one of the standards. Um, there should be a certain um, – Certain, uh, we should be looking at the employment rate of that kind. Now, as Don points out, that's a very difficult thing to operationalize, and I'm, I can't say that I have a, an easy way of doing it. How do you know what jobs are jobs you would not have gotten but for the law degree, um, uh, and, and what jobs you would have gotten anyway, even if you didn't have a law degree? But I think that's something we should we should be looking for, and I think the standards should be um, approached to that. I also am very much in favor of, of other rankings uh, that really focus on employment. Uh, again. You know, U.S. News, while it's a very, it's a very small percentage of that, uh, I, I'd welcome uh, something like the National Law Journal has done recently, uh, uh, but that's just a, a, a small slice of that. Um, I, would, I would welcome some other uh, ranker coming in and, and actually doing an employment, basing it upon employment surveys so applicants can get a sense of what their prospects really are. I'm curious, uh, David, you mentioned the auditors before. How are, I mean, overall, how are law school deans reacting to that idea when you mention it? Well, I haven't heard much reaction, uh, reaction mm -hmm. to it at all. Uh, you know, I think every, you know, one of the problems with rankings, I think every law school dean, you know, it, it, it's a major issue for them. And alumni care about that. Um, students care about that. And applicants uh, care about that. And so it's a very strong um, tendency of law school deans, uh, it's almost, it's not unanimous because I'm, I'm, I'm opposed to it, but there's a, uh, who really think that, that U.S. News should, if they could do away with it, they would somehow. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't think it's, uh, they don't think it's right or le legitimate. Uh, I'm a, I'm actually a big fan of rankings and in, in consumer information. I think where we need, what we do need to have is a little more, uh, a couple more rankings out there so that applicants can see the way different people um, would um, take that data and combine it.
And David, given these recent employment numbers for law school grads, has Northwestern changed how or what it tells incoming students with regards to employment opportunities? Absolutely. I mean, we start right out, you know, um, uh, we, we tell them that they uh, – we, we try to be very realistic about talking about the current market. In fact, on our webpage is a market trends um, page that anybody can get access to. It's public, and we, we collect all sorts of data and information uh, about the marketplace, whether it's employment rates generally or different sectors or different geographic reasons or regions, uh, as well as salary information, anything we can get, uh, we, we put up there. And so we're advising students, yes, it's a more difficult environment. You have to broaden your search. Um, you have to look at um, other kinds of things. You know, you know, maybe the, the big law firm job uh, is not going to get for every get there for everyone. So you be you have you have to be flexible in terms of what you're uh, what you're doing. Yeah, you know, reality is we're still doing you know we're still doing very well in terms of the employment market. Our our rate at um, nine months out for 2009, I think it's 98 and a half percent. So it's not that much lower. But I would say the mix of jobs that our students are getting it has changed. Don, what about Santa Clara? Have you changed uh, what or how you tell incoming students about the job market? Yeah, yes, uh, clearly. And uh, um, I think a lot of the reasons for our change certainly have been the greater curiosity and interest and concern that uh, applicants and admitted students have, and and certainly our own students as well. And, And I think that, uh, as, as David had pointed out, I think the real clear focus on this is, um, is certainly prospective students at, at schools to the extent that employment opportunities are a key part of their decision-making. Uh, there's a need for schools to uh, try to provide uh, better, clearer information. So we have a series, for examples, of open houses for applicants and admitted students, and we'll have Several hundred come through those very often with uh, with parents or partners, and uh, uh, we have tried to be much more responsive to their specific um, information needs and interest uh, that we have. Um, we've tried, in particular, not to sugarcoat the uh, current economic situation and the effect that it's having on our um, graduates and uh, on the opportunities that are available, uh, will be available to our graduates in the next uh, couple of uh, years. Um, as David also pointed out, I think this is a, I mean, it's really, uh, it's really an area where more information, better information is necessary, but getting meaningful information and presenting it in a way that is meaningful and accessible to those audiences, it's very complicated. And so, for example, we captured uh, information about um, our graduates who had accepted offers at firms, many of them the larger or national law firms, then they were deferred. So are they employed or not employed? We don't have a category for deferrals um, to the extent that we know which one of our graduates, um, after they left on graduation, were informed that they would be starting maybe next summer or next spring. Well, um, do you think you should have a category for deferrals? Would that be useful information? Yeah, maybe in this very current snapshot, this is a phenomenon that we saw uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, and it's likely to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, when the economy turns around, 
and I'm one of those in a category that believe that uh, that it will turn around, um, and uh, there will be uh, better days ahead uh, for um, uh, for young lawyers. So the meaningfulness of that information is questionable because it's um, it's such a small episode on a, on a longer scale of things. But in terms of describing that uh, phenomenon to prospective students now we we in fact do that um, and report to them that some of our graduates had accepted positions and those were uh, deferred so uh, greater transparency absolutely necessary I think that the questionnaire committee of uh, the section on legal education is constantly working to try and make those uh, reported figures, because that's really the baseline, the numbers that are reported to the American Bar Association as a part of the annual report that every accredited law school does, is really the baseline for this information. That's what U.S. News uh, snags onto, and um, and I know that NALP figures are largely based upon those um, on that same sort of methodology or formula. So uh, they're you know. They're working to, he- to stay ahead of the scammers and the schemers um, on uh, uh, that are concerned about manipulating rankings, uh, right? And uh, but also to get more meaningful information that is reported and in a way that's not a big data dump for uh, prospective students. So much information that it becomes meaningless. Well, and for Don and David, I'm curious because you always hear this one side that some law schools don't do enough to let students know what the reality is. On the other hand, is there a sense that incoming students may not really be listening? I know one professor said, you know, it's really hard to puncture these mental models people have of what it means to be a lawyer and what comes with it. I, if I could pu- jump in, this is Dave Van Zandt. Uh-huh. Uh, I, there, is, there is something to that. <clears throat> um, I've recently done just a quick, it's sort of a back-of-the-envelope analysis of uh, when it's uh, economically viable to go to law school. And uh, what it shows is that if you take in consideration sort of an average salary a person would get if they didn't go to law school plus the cost of law school plus the opportunity cost of three years of being out of the workforce, uh, it shows basically that coming out of law school, you need to have uh, a salary of about $65,000. Now, this is an average, and you know, we're using sort of an average for um, law school tuitions. Uh, you know, some some people will are going to do very well, but that's sort of the average. And so, if you're a rational person making a decision about going um, going to uh, law school, <laughs> that should cause you some pause if you're considering a law school who reports a median salary of less. Than that number, and the reality is there's quite a few law schools, uh, more uh, rather than less, that do report numbers uh, below that, uh, below that threshold. So the way I look at it is, I think there are a lot of applicants um, who are just very optimistic, um, because even in, even in the, in the uh, law school with the lowest median salary, there are always going to be some people at the top who do very well. Uh, and I, th- I think what there is is sort of a, a excessive optimism. Everybody <laughs> believes that they're above average or they're going to be they're going to be in the top 10 percent. Um, right, 80 percent believe they'll be in the top 10. Right. <laughs> no, which is wonderful. I mean, wonderful optimism to have. God bless our them. young people for the country. But I think it sometimes skews the decision making about this. You know, there was, uh, I think on the ABA website, there was a, a news story um, a few months ago about a study that was done of uh, prospective lawyers, um, uh, prospective law students, I think they were. And what David has described 
was exactly borne out by this study, um, because a high percentage of the group felt that there were diminished economic opportunities in the current environment, but an equally high percentage felt that that was not going to be applicable to them, <laughs> that, that it was, you know, the woman sitting next to you or the guy sitting next to you in law school that was going to have that um, uh, poor economic um, outlook for his or her career start, but that's not going to happen to me, they felt. So I think that, you know, one of the interesting things we've seen in dealing with newly admitted students, applicants, and their families, their parents and partners, is that it's the partners and the parents that are really much more focused on this. We don't get as many questions and certainly not very detailed questions from admitted students uh, or new students about economic um, opportunities that they may face, but their parents, wives, uh, partners, what have you, um, husbands of uh, these law students are, are much more focused in on those uh, economic realities. Kyle, what do you think about that as someone who's still in law school? In terms of the, I guess, uh, optimism bias? Or yes, exactly, the optimism of law students and incoming students. I, I guess, I mean, it, it's very clear to me that everything they've described, uh, Dean Van Zant and Dean Polden, is correct that I mean, students don't really ask that question as much as they probably should be. And basically, I mean, I think, again, it comes down to just not having the right data and information to look at. And even looking at the U.S. News salary information, um, using Dean Van Zandt's figure from the class of 2007, or the $65,000 median, um, 53 of the schools actually fall below that. But that still doesn't really tell us anything about what the median salaries are from the schools because it's median private sector starting salary. And that only tells you about maybe 30% of the class. And so when, when this information is not available for students to see, I think it's easier to fill in the gaps in their minds with more positive information so they can justify doing this thing they want to do where this thing is law school. So Maybe we should publish my graph for, for the public good. <laughs> that, that would be fine with me, I'm sure. Um, well, you know, and also, maybe it wouldn't be just a concern if law school wasn't so expensive. Don Polden, why have the costs of legal education risen so much over the past 15 years? I know in 1992, the average private law school tuition was about $13,730. What's happened? Well, uh, looking back, uh, and this is more anecdotal than it is analytically based, but um, I think that the two biggest changes in legal education that have occurred over that 20-year period of time have been the increased number of small classes, uh, counseling and negotiation, mediation, clinics, and, and these sort of things that by their very nature are, uh, require small student-faculty ratios. Um, when I look back, for example, to my law school career compared to what I see not only at that law school, but uh, the law schools I've been at, I've just seen a tremendous growth in the number of these classes. Um, and, of course, a lot of the recent literature is suggesting that uh, that uh, law schools need to do more to build a, a, a dramatically broader array of uh, fundamental or key lawyering skills and abilities, and those have come at a cost. The other Part of this, I think, um, looking back at this, is the tremendous growth in uh, programs and activities and personnel that support student um, 
well-being, if you will. And so when I look at our school and compare it to the school, um, you know, even 10 years ago, I see a tremendous number in IT um, professionals. I see a tremendous number in career services officers. You look at law schools, the growth in, in student success or academic success programs, there has been a significant increase in this kind of professional cadre of people that are there to support today's learners. There's literature, as we all know, that says that today's learners, they put labels on them, millennials or Gen X. Uh, today's learners require uh, different kind of um, support and assistance um, certainly not because they're uh, less intelligent or less focused. They just expect um, a certain level of student support and services. And um, I think David would probably bear this out. This is this is how law schools will compete with each other. They uh, with prospective students. If you come to my school, you're going to have. Uh, five full-time professionals in the career services office. You're going to have seven full-time professionals in our IT department for all of your technology needs. So those are the two things that I see have been the, the most uh, dramatic areas of increased cost in legal education over maybe 20 years. I, I totally agree with Don. I think he put a finger. I would put them into two boxes. One is faculty. I mean, we've seen an increase lowering the teacher uh, student faculty ratio, and we've also seen a lot of increasing salaries to faculty over time. And the second are various student support functions that he was so so ably and carefully um, described. I would add one other element to it, uh, which is that uh, there is still um, low elasticity on price in law schools. That is, uh, and what the, the, the what that what causes is a lack of incentives for many law schools to reduce or limit their expenses. Law schools feel, as Don said, we have to compete with each other in providing more and more services. We have to have the best faculty because that affects our reputation. Students choose law schools based on reputation. Um, so there's this competition going on that's raising the cost all the time. At the same time, there's actually been very little price resistance. Uh, it's because, maybe going back to the success of optimism, but you know the students think, well, no matter what I pay, have to pay for the degree, I'm going to end up um, better off than if I you know, if I um, um, don't get the law degree, and so I'm willing to willing to pay for it. Now, that is true, I think, in reality, for a whole range of graduates who end up in you know jobs that pay $160,000 a year. Um, while it may seem like a lot of tuition, it's still you know that's still quite that's still quite manageable. The real problem is for people who don't end up with um, don't end up with those sorts of jobs. But there's really there has been little economic pressure on law schools, unlike the pressure that's now on law firms or other businesses. Um, there's been little economic pressure uh, to reduce or limit expenses over time. Kyle, could you see students, potential students, putting that in that economic pressure on law schools to reduce costs? I think they're in a very difficult position right now to do that. Um, eventually, I think they'd be able to, but right now I, I have a hard time seeing how, how they could, especially with the strong focus on the U.S. news. And that's kind of, mm. I guess, the elephant in the room at all times is how, how do my expenditures affect my U.S. news rank and should I increase them? And it seems that deans are beholden to this and usually admit it. Sometimes they can't admit it, but it's just this, this thing that's there and is dominating or it seems to be dominating to uh, from the outside looking in. 
uh, a lot of the decisions being made. And whether that has to do with getting the better students to, to enroll um, based on student services or faculty, or if it has to do with just ranking prestige generally, I'm not sure, but it, it seems that this is a huge pressure that until law students have reason to focus their attention away from, won't enable schools to, I guess, drive down costs. One other point, Stephanie, I could add to that, and, and um, Don, you may have a different view of this, but I do think there's um, law schools have fairly stringent regulation about inputs from the ABA, which regulates um, or credits law schools, basically. And so there is a, an element there of, um, uh, you know, uh, it requires the current regulations require a lot of different kinds of inputs, you know, physical plant, libraries, um, full-time faculty, uh, a range of other things, which makes it very difficult for a new school to come in and compete by um, offering a lower cost, uh, a lower cost model. Now, having said that, I want to point out that Don is leading a great effort within the ABA to change that and to focus much more on output measures, which I certainly think is is, is should be applauded. Okay. Um, well, let's go back to the U.S. News and World Report. I know some people, particularly law school deans, it seems like, and professors, they say that the rankings, they play a large role in this law school tuition increase. Don, do you agree with that? Uh, I would not agree with the term large. I, I, uh, there was a recent GAO study, for example, not a, in my own personal opinion, it's not deeply analytic. Uh, in that sense, but they concluded that that a significant factor in the increase in law school tuition has been uh, U.S. News and World Report, and, and, and more and more um, specifically, I think how law schools have responded uh, to the U.S. News and World Report. Um, and so, and of course, I think that that's a little bit of a mixed bag um, in this sense. And so, for example. The, the greatest infirmity with the U.S. News and World Report is this 40% in this kind of shadowy, murky, uh, reputational surveys that they send out. And there's virtually no information about who's responding or how many respondents or the credentials of the people who are asked to respond and this sort of thing. And yet that's uh, 40% of the ranking. The other 60% are things that I think all four of us would very quickly agree would be pertinent to prospective students and perhaps to prospective employers um, in terms of the academic uh, qualifications of the class coming in and how successful they were in the bar exam and these sort of things. But that 40% um, remains a very troubling part of the veracity, if you will, um, uh, of that ranking. So what schools have done is they have spent an enormous amount of money on publications and marketing uh, of our school. And so every fall, David and I get uh, wheelbarrows full of um, uh, materials that, uh, uh, frankly, I, I don't know about uh, David's uh, time no. for this, but I don't have time to go through all of this and figure out what uh, um, uh, what uh, the the new law school in Poughkeepsie is doing or what have you. Uh, one sage uh, law school professor referred to that material as uh, what was it law school porn? Yeah, uh, it, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's kind of you know kind of meaningless stuff that's sent out. But on the other hand. 
those rankings, I think, have also spurred law schools to spend more money on student scholarships so that they can compete for higher LSAT scores, for example, LSAT scores being one of the factors in the uh, ranking. So to the extent that some of this um, ranking-spurred money is going to students, I'd have to say, and I guess Kyle would probably agree with me as well, that that's a good thing, that we're trying to use our resources to attract better students to to the school. So, you know, the, the, the meaningless expenditures for a lot of the marketing publications, uh, not a very healthy aspect of the rankings, um, but there are some areas that I think are, are positive uh, ones. Another thing that you hear oftentimes from alums and perhaps disgruntled alums is that one reason tuition has gone up at law schools is because universities use the law schools to financially support their other schools. David, what do you think about that idea? You know, I've heard that. Um, I've heard that a lot. A lot of, uh, in fact, a lot of law school deans feel at least um, that's that's an issue that they deal with. In my own experience, you know, I, when I look at it um, and I look at a university like ours, um, we certainly do run a small surplus, and we contribute that to the center of the university. Why? Because you know, Northwestern is a great name, and we're, we want to be part of Northwestern, and we want to do things to make Northwestern better. So I look at that as, as an investment. But if you actually looked at the total dollar numbers that I send to the central um, administration um, every year, uh, it, it, it is tiny. It's a tiny percentage of their resources. They have a gigantic medical school. They've got, uh, you know, an engineering school, a business school. It, it really, I, the, I, the model of the university president saying, oh, I need money. Let's go and, um, you know, let's go get a cash cow and start a law school to me is just uh, ridiculous. I think, I think university presidents may start law schools for reputational reasons, uh, but I don't think it's a financial savior uh, for universities. Don, what do you think? Well, I think I think that that's right. I, I do know that at some schools that um, particularly uh, underfinanced universities um, will see a prestige factor from starting a law school. And it used to be in the so-called old days that, given that given the kind of pedagogy that was going on in schools, and that is virtually all of the classes had 80 students for one faculty member that the reputation of law schools as cash cows got started. I think given today's realities, we we are not, in fact, cash cows, but we can add to the prestige of a university that's interested in um, um, in, in, uh, starting uh, graduate professional programs um, and, and what have you. So I know of instances at law schools where the university has hit a rough spot and will um, uh, grab resources that are available on the table. But I think in many instances, David's comment's absolutely right. Law schools have to and are expected to contribute to the overhead of running their operation. They need to contribute to the brand identification of the university because that benefits the law school. Where you strike that level or how you go about making that assessment, you know, you would need a team of cost accountants to go in and figure out exactly how much it costs to run the law school um, as a part of the university in order to come up with an accurate figure. In our, in our case, we have a, 
a formula that uh, was agreed to between the university and the law school back in the early 90s. You know, it ain't rocket science, but it's worked very well for us and I think for the university. And it is something that we can depend on. That at the end of the year, the university gets a fund transfer of a certain percentage of our gross tuition uh, revenues that go there, and that's to cover the so-called overhead of the university. Don and David, can you tell us what are some of the pressures you face as deans in terms of figuring out and inputting what tuition should be at your law schools? Uh, well, I'll take a first stab at that. Okay. I think I think there is. Um, I think what what restrains, and you'll find this odd for me to say this, but what restrains law school tuition is a sense that we don't, you know, we want, uh, you know, we realize it's, it is an expensive thing, and uh, we don't want to get out ahead of our competitors in terms of um, uh, pricing the degree at all, and. Um, you know, so that's always a consideration. Uh, you know, is it something you can look at and say, you know, can I, you know, can I, you know, really say, you know, this is a reasonable increase um, or, or a reasonable level of tuition? You know, beyond that, you're looking at just your cost structure. Um, uh, I think most law schools today in the last couple of years have been trying to cut, cut back on that cost structure, uh, although there's some elements of it that, that, that continue to go up even in, um, uh, even in, even in uh, a recession. And one thing that has gone up is financial aid. Uh, if you think of that as a cost, it's, you know, it's had to go up in part, to, um, in part because of the economic situation many applicants, uh, many more applicants find themselves in. Don, what do you think? Well, I, th I think that uh, that's right. Uh, how this happens, I think, at most institutions is um, that there are two aspects of it. You get this year's tuition, and then usually by uh, mandate of the university or by some sort of university budget setting uh, process, you come up with a number. What's a good number? 3% increase, 2%, uh, 5%. Uh, and that's, in our case, and, and um, as in David's, it's very much constrained by competition. And so every year I take a look at, uh, um, at what our uh, primary competitors are, are charging now, um, anticipate what that tuition is going to look like and where we want to be on the spreadsheet, if you will, that, may, um, that prospective students may look at. And... Uh, uh, so um, the fact that uh, um, that uh, Southern Cal and Stanford have a higher tuition than ours is not important to us because those are different law schools uh, with different capacities to attract students to them. But um, for schools that uh, we consider to be our peers in terms of competing against for students, uh, we're very uh, aware of uh, what changes in our tuition may mean um, in relationship to those other schools. I think an interesting thing that we're seeing here, and I think nationally, um, is in a sense a movement towards a greater, if you will, privatization of some of the state schools. UC Hastings, a state school, uh, tuition is going to be over $40,000 a year um, next year. Wow. I think uh, Berkeley and... Um, Another state school and UCLA's tuition have jumped up fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars in uh, just in the last couple of years, and so uh, their tuition is uh, going to be as uh, as expensive as um, most of the, many of the private schools. 
um, are doing so. Uh, I think that the state subsidy is starting to uh, dwindle significantly for many state uh, institutions. Yeah, it's interesting. I think Don is absolutely right about what's happening generally in the marketplace. I mean, there have been a lot of public schools that have been heavily subsidized by taxpayers over the years, and you know, now once those uh, once those subsidies are being removed, you're seeing the the real price of the education, you know, really converge um, at where most of the privates are. Kyle, as someone who's still in law school, do you feel like you're getting a value for what you're purchasing? Um, a value, yes. Whether it's enough value is a separate question. I, I feel like I'm getting a great education. I feel like I have wonderful opportunities coming out of law school and even during the summers. But whether it's enough, I mean, that's a question that's kind of un- unanswerable for me right right now because I'm just starting my third year in August. Uh-huh. And I, I would say that I, I expect it to be, but, of course, how much of that's optimism bias and how much is realistic, I guess that's a question for someone else to answer about me. But I don't know, it, it seems that there's a lot of focus on the economic value. And with law school being a huge barrier of entry to this profession, that there's also some value in just being a lawyer into itself. And that's a little harder to measure. And for that reason, I think kind of fills in that gap I was talking about earlier, at least for me, that I, I'm happy with my choice and wouldn't change my choice right now, even with the given current economic uh, climate. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Don, to what extent do do you see the employment picture improving for new lawyers? Uh, To be honest with you, I haven't seen that happening yet. I've heard some some stories about it, but I haven't really seen it. I will probably know uh, more this fall. Uh, when when some of the reports on this year's graduating uh, class um, uh, comes in. Um, so uh, I think that, personally, I think that uh, we're going to be experiencing this for at least another uh, 18 months, even if the economy starts to turn around in a steady and, and um, uh, you know, well-paced way, which it, which it really hasn't. Uh, over the next 12 months, so I think we're we're in for more of the same here over the next uh, year and a half, maybe two years. David, what do you think? You know, I've seen little shoots, um, green shoots, as I said about the economy, but I've seen that in in law, the law business itself. Uh, we've had a number of, of graduates who had, had had their start times deferred, have those um, start times accelerated some. Uh, we are getting more inquiries from firms about, um, you know, uh, uh, people that may be available to hire. So, but it's very minor. I think Don is right. We'll, we'll, we'll have a better sense of it in the fall. The one thing I will say on a long-term basis, though, um, is that I think uh, we're not going to go back to the boom years um, because what's happened with the current economic crisis is that law firms, the employers, have really looked at their cost structures, and they're now realizing that they don't need to pay very high salaries to a large number of people. For one, why do you pay the same salary to everybody coming in, you know, in the door? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No other business would do that. So I think there's a lot. Uh, my expectation is while the jobs will come back to some extent, they won't come back to the same level as a percentage um, of of the uh, uh, of, of employment and law generally. And that, to me, is a worrisome trend. Uh, for a, it should be a worrisome trend for a lot of law schools out there. And Kyle, what do you think the job market will be like for the class of 2011? 
Um, not not so great. I I think Dean Polden is exactly right that it's a few years off, and even if the economy turns around, lawyers tend to be more risk averse and are going to react a little little small little more slowly, I guess. And I think that's going to have a huge effect on my class, and both because of the future and because the class of 2010 is deferred, the class of 2009 is deferred, and it'll be convenient and logical for the firms to skip over the class of 2011 and then just start fresh with 2012 or 2013. Gentlemen, I think that's everything. Did anyone want to add anything? No. No. All right. Covered a lot there. All right. Thank you all so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This ABA Journal podcast was brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strengths of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. Their most significant innovation in 30 years, it's a complete research system that gives you confidence you've found the most relevant information, and it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com.